Church, this is a terrible time for a generosity initiative. This is the wrong time to call the church body to say, hey, let's 100% of us give our most generous gift on May 23rd and then, and then reorient our finances for a year to give generously and sacrificially for a full year after. This is a terrible time. There are so many reasons. This is the wrong time to do a generosity initiative. We have been in the middle of a pandemic the past year. You know, uh, before when all this started, we were firing on all cylinders. We were seeing the Lord do a mighty thing. Man, that would have been the time for a generosity initiative. And now we haven't gathered together as a body for a full year plus some. We have another great reason not to do a generosity initiative. We don't even have this specific building to point at and say, this is the one for sure that the Lord has for us, and we all have to get in the movement together in generosity to see Him provide. It's a terrible time. We have so many reasons not to do this. Uh, think a little more even overarching. Uh, Planting a church like ours in a place like this that is so secular and so expensive. You know, I remember it was uh, nine years ago, we, we had pulled up to, to Silver Spring. You know, home was Howard County, but we spent uh, seven years in pastoral ministry out in Dallas and finally got to come back kind of more hometown. And, and we were starting with nobody. It was my wife and I and four kids and we just said, we got to meet people in Silver Spring. You know, if we're going to start a church, we have to know some people, right? So anybody who was breathing, I would talk to, and particularly pastors, right? So, so I'm knocking on every door uh, of every dead church and then some vibrant churches. And, and I knocked on this one door. I thought, you know, Unitarian Universalist may as well talk with this pastor. So I sit across a desk from him. And he's sitting there. He kind of gives me the... The slant eyes, you know, he's kind of staring at me funny. He knows I'm this kind of evangelical church kind of pastor. And, and, that, and, and that kind is not really loved in this area. And he says to me, so wait, your church is going to be one that, you know, believes the scriptures are fully true, like they're inerrant and they're God's word. I said, yeah, that's our kind of church. He goes, hmm. Uh, your church, wait, is it going to be one of those that says you have to believe in Jesus for salvation, like in his death and in his resurrection? Wait, wait you don't actually believe he actually resurrected, do you? Yeah, that's our kind of church. He looks right at me, I'll never forget it. He says, we'll see how a church like yours does in a place like this. Impossible. So many reasons not to do this now. So many general reasons not to plant a church like ours in a place like this. And, and then we think of the audacious ask that God is calling us into, right? In this time that we might sink roots for the sake of the gospel and see the good news of Jesus proclaimed that people would find life and salvation in Him. And we say, hey, 100% of us. It's audacious, right? Every one of us who, who calls the Well Community Church their church home would give their most generous upfront kickstart gift on May 23rd from their stocks, their stuff, from, from their savings, and maybe write the biggest check they've ever written to the church. 
And then 100% of us budgeting in a year of giving over and above our normal tithe to say, yes, Lord, we believe you're planting and sinking our roots here for generation after generation of life change and church planting. We believe it, Lord. It's audacious. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense in this time, in this place. That $1.5 million or, or more might come in? No way. Why is our first response always no before the Lord? When he calls us into an impossible situation with insufficient resources, why do we always just say no, no way? That's where we always start, isn't it? Maybe we start getting thinking, well, okay, 1.5 million, that's... If a hundred of us each give ten thousand, that's a million. So, so maybe it is possible if a hundred did this or that. And, and, but, but, but first, we always start with no excuses. It's the first domino that has to topple in the face of his eternal plans and his eternal provision. If we are to see him do a mighty work by faith. What we'll do this morning is we're going to take a look at Moses' excuses because his first response is no, but, but, but. Contrast, no, no way, excuse one after another. And Moses' excuses are the very excuses that each one of us have before the Lord when he calls us into an impossible situation with insufficient resources that he might show off his amazing glory. And then we'll see how he topples that first domino. What satisfies our excuses and who our God is and how he acts. So let's look together at Moses' excuses because they are our very excuses and they are the first domino that must topple if we are to see the Lord do a mighty work in each of our lives and through our church, the Well Community Church. Let's remember the situation here, right? Moses, uh, he, he is born into an impossible situation. He is born in order to be slaughtered. The Pharaoh has declared in Egypt that the Israelites have become too numerous internal to Egypt. And, and the Pharaoh is frightened that uh, if they are attacked by an outside enemy, the Israelites would raise up in this massive number, probably around 600,000 join the external enemy, and take Egypt down. So the Pharaoh says, every male child to and under must be slaughtered, thrown into the Nile River. Moses is born a slave to slaves in this setting. His mother looks at him and says, what an amazing child, as every mother does, right? And, and Moses is the third of three children, and, and Miriam and Aaron are already born, and, and, and Moses' mother says, I've I got to hide this one. I've got to save him. I don't want to slaughter him. So she puts him in a basket of reeds and, and puts him in the Nile River, and Pharaoh's daughter walks by and, and probably hears baby Moses crying. He's around three months old. And, and instead of following the command of her father, the Pharaoh, to slaughter this one and throw him in the Nile River, she scoops him up and in mercy and, and pity and grace, she says, I want to keep this one. And out from a distance runs Miriam, Moses' sister, and says, hey, do you want me to find someone to, to nurse this child for you, a Hebrew? And, and the Pharaoh's daughter says, oh, yeah, that'd be amazing. And so Miriam runs and goes and gets Moses' mother, her mother, in order to nurse her own child and raise him on the Pharaoh's dime. 
The Pharaoh says, oh, I'll pay for that, right? Now the Pharaoh's daughter says, I'm going to pay this uh, Hebrew midwife to nurse my child. It's actually her child. And Moses is rescued in order to deliver God's people, to rescue them out of slavery and provide for them a, a land where they would worship their God who has done the impossible, who has provided the resources, by His glory, His might, His grace, His mercy. And remember last week we looked at this call, this promise that God gives Moses in chapter 3, verse 10. Come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people and children out of Egypt. Come. And Moses says to the Lord, how do I know you're going to do this? And the Lord looks right at Moses and he says, you'll know I'm going to do it when it's done. When I do it, you'll know I did it. I, I am the Lord. And it's a terrible promise on the front end. It's a terrible down payment, but, but unless it's from the Lord himself. And Moses starts scratching his head. And the next kind of phrase is just like uh, a flip of the come, I will send you. And he's thinking, if I come, Lord, if I come. And here come Moses' excuses, which are our excuses which must topple if we are going to see the Lord do a mighty work in and through us for his glory. Excuse number one. Excuse number one. It won't work, Lord. It won't work. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, but the first contrast of his three excuses, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Oh, Lord, thanks for the calling. Thanks for this uh, amazing work you want to call me into. But it won't work. See, they, the, the circumstance surrounding me, the Egyptians, the leader, the Pharaoh who wants me dead, uh, they will not listen to me or you. See, the circumstances are impossible. They have enslaved us. They are keeping us under their oppression. This will not work. They will not listen to me. The situation is impossible. And the Lord says to Moses, okay, I've got a plan for them then. When you come to them, take this staff, and, and I love this part of the story because you know it's history, right? right? You don't make this stuff up. And, and Moses says, okay, I've got my staff. And the Lord says, throw it on the ground. And Moses throws it on the ground. And the first thing he does is what we would all do. Oh, my gosh. And he runs away. And the Lord says to Moses, pick up the tail. And he's like, oh, my gosh, I killed a six-foot black snake. It was in our backyard. You know how I killed it? Oh, my gosh. I'm like way over here trying to slap it with a shovel. And the Lord says, pick up the tail. And the tail of the snake becomes, again, Moses' staff. Why? The Lord says that they might believe. I'll change the circumstance. I'll change their mind. I'll change what is holding this impossible thing back. And then the Lord says, oh, take your hand and put it into your cloak. And when you pull it out, become leprous. And then show it to everyone. And then you put it back in your cloak and take it out. Why? Verse 8, if they will not believe you in this, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter. I will change the situation. I will change their minds. I will change their hearts. Verse 9 of chapter 4, if they will not believe even these first two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and throw it in a dry place and watch it be turned blood. 
Why? That the impossibility of them receiving you as though they were receiving the Lord, that the impossibility of them releasing my people, that they will believe I'll change them where you could not. The situation is impossible, but let me work in it. Do you ever make decisions not on faith, but on the uh, preconceived outcome? On what you have decided already, you know, if I do this, particularly for the Lord, I I know how they're going to respond or how they'll react. I know when I say I I am coming here to rescue the uh, Israelites out of Egypt, that that they'll say, no, you're crazy. When God calls you to reconcile a relationship, have you ever said to the Lord, I've already tried. I have already tried to offer forgiveness or ask for forgiveness. It did not go well. It will not go well this way. Uh, The Lord says, uh, would you go see what I do? Or you, you, you live next to this neighbor and you've gotten to know him or her, their family a bit more. And, and you, you started to get deeper in conversations. And you, you feel the Lord saying, would you begin sharing about how you go to church, about who, who you worship? Would you tell them that you are a follower of Jesus? And you say, if I do that, I know they're going to shame me. This relationship's going to be over. I was in a Bible study, our 3D group of men. We meet on Wednesday nights, and, and one of the guys, he's a newer believer, so his faith is on fire, right? And he's like, he goes, uh, Matt, this is uh, about midway through the pandemic. He goes, we got to email the whole neighborhood, 900 homes on listserv. We got to invite them to our Bible study. And I, I'm the pastor, right? So, uh, and there's other congregants in our 3D group. So I say, yeah, great idea. I'm going to email this thing out on Next Door Neighbor, and we're going to put it on our listserv, and totally. And I'm just thinking, no way. I know how that will go. I'm not doing that. It's going to ruin all these relationships I've tried to build up over the years. And, man, people are going to shame us for wanting to do, like, a men's Bible study only. Why aren't you inviting women, you know, a Christian thing? We don't want any part of that. And I'm like, no way is what I'm thinking back here. It will not go well. So it's the next week on Wednesday. I show up at 3D Group again, and... And this guy's there with a few others, and he says, did you send the email? I'm like, this is what I just let happen. No, I didn't do it. This is a bad idea, right? This is a bad idea. And he says, send it tomorrow. And I'm like, dang it. And like, like I said, other congregants there. And so I'm like, okay. I write up an email. Hey, we're going to study the book of Mark. It's going to be great. We hope you can come. We're going to have, we're going to have meat and drinks. We would love for you to be there. And, uh, and, and I send it out. And people came. And God is doing a profound work on Wednesday nights in our own lives, our own hearts, our own minds, and in those who have joined. Do not decide forsaking your faith on a preconceived outcome of what you think will happen. You do not know, I do not know what our God will do. Second excuse Moses gives. I can't do it. Verse 10, Moses, but Moses, again in contrast to the Lord, an excuse before the Lord, but Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Hey, he says, you know, Lord, that's really great that you'll take care of them and the situation there in Egypt when I go, but there's another problem. It's me. 
I don't have the ability. I don't have the experience. If I were to write out my resume with what I can do, what I have done, it would not be great. I am not eloquent. I, I am slow of speech. I don't have sufficient resources to get this thing done. The, the situation is impossible, but I don't have what it takes. I love the Lord's response. Verse 11 of chapter 4 in Exodus, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? And who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. <laughs> he looks at Moses, he looks at us, he says, I made your mouth. I, I made your head, I gave you your brain, I, I gave you your hands and your feet and your legs. You, you walked here right to stand before me and to say with a mouth that I made, no. And you're giving me these excuses as though the one who made your mouth cannot tell you what to say? I'm not able. Have you ever made decisions, not by faith, but based on your own ability, your own experience? As though the thing that the Lord were calling you into, you could do on your own. As though the eternal God who has eternal purposes, uh, you, you could fulfill them with your ability and your experience. It's a little later in Israel's history in Judges chapter 7 uh, where something really similar happens and it's Gideon's life and Gideon is this judge and he's been called by God to rescue the Israelites that uh, have come under the oppression in this case of the Midianites. And the Midianites are, are camped out, there's 120,000 of them. And Gideon with the Israelites, there's only about 32,000. I mean the odds are stacked against him. 120,000 enemy versus his 32,000. And Gideon uh, comes before the Lord. And here's what the Lord says to Gideon in chapter 7, verse 2 of Judges. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you, this 32,000, are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, that 120,000. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. You hear it? He says, you're 32,000. It's way too many to go into battle against that 120,000, your enemy. Because what you might say then is that I've saved myself. I've done what I could do. I have, I have rescued my people. And so the Lord says to him, he says, okay, so look, what I want you to do, Gideon, is go to your army of 32,000 and say, whoever's frightened, and everybody's got to be terrified, if you're frightened, you can go home. 22,000 say, fine, we're going home. 10,000 are left. 10,000 to face 120,000. And Gideon's like, oh, man, this is not looking good, Lord. Like our resources are way depleted. I do not have what it takes. And the Lord says, I got another thing for you to do. Why don't you go down to the river and ask everyone to drink? And those who lap up water, you keep them for the battle. Everyone else send home. 300 people lap up water. And the Lord says, that's it. <laughs> that's the number I'm looking for, that you will not receive the praise for the victory because our God calls us into impossible situations with insufficient resources that he would get the glory. Not us. 
Well, now Moses gets right down to it, the bottom line, which is where we're all at. And he says in verse 13, but third contrast, third excuse, no way, Lord. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. There it is. Uh, That's the honest truth. That's the bottom line. I I just actually don't want to go. I don't want you to disrupt the plans and the comfort and the control of my life. Actually, if you call me to give a huge gift, I don't want to do it because what will that do to my savings and security? If you call me to share with my neighbor, I don't want to do it because what will that do to my relationship? If you call me to reconcile with my mother-in-law, I don't want to do it because where will that go? I am nice and comfortable back here behind my white picket fence just being a nice little Christian. I don't want to. Yeah, man, one of the best compliments a friend gave me. This this is it. He said, Matt, this is recently, he goes, when I met you, it's after I met you, my life got flipped upside down. Everything's chaos now. It's one of the best compliments I've ever received. Why? Because it had nothing to do with me. All I did was introduce him to the living God. And that living God has turned his whole life over. For his own deeper joys and eternal purposes and the glory of our God. Moses says, I don't want to. I want to keep control. I want to keep comfort. And and what the Lord ought to have said, and he was angry. uh, The Lord then in the anger of the Lord, which was kindled, verse 14, against Moses. what, What the Lord ought to have said is just, fine, fine, if you don't want to go. I'll rescue. I'll I'll pull off the most amazing rescue mission that anyone's ever seen through somebody else, and you'll miss that joy. Moses, fine. Be selfish, right? Like, keep your comfort. Keep your control. And just know that, that, that my people will stay enslaved because of your apathy. That's not what our gracious God does. That's not what our eternal God does with eternal purposes and eternal provision. That's not what our Lord does in his grace and mercy and power. I'll never, you know, forget uh, um, when we got into the Penske truck nine years ago, you know. Uh, we were in Dallas as, uh, in pastoral ministry out there. You know, home is right here in Howard County, but we spent seven years out there for school and then pastoral ministry. And, and, and praise God, he brought us back to uh, the East Coast and uh, in that process, though, we're driving this Penske truck home. Where, you know, we're called in this idea of plant a church, start a church, start the well. And, and there's just me, my wife, and, and our four little kids. And, and, and at that point, there were four. And got two more since. And, man, uh, we're driving, right? We're driving on, on, on 301 uh, right over Harper's Ferry, this little bridge. We're towing that, that ratty old Acura. I don't know if you can see it in the picture. It's even packed. We had the hibachi strapped to the back. It was awesome. And I look over on this bridge heading into Maryland, and my wife just is crying, crying, crying. And I said, what's wrong? She goes, we're not going to find any young families or kids there. Because we had this amazing situation in Dallas where there were all these Christian families we become friends with, started having kids with, and, and we had this tight-knit community. Everyone's kind of of like mind, and, and it was amazing. And, and she says, we're not going to find anybody. And I start thinking, oh, dang. I didn't even do the data and the research on are there young families here. And I'm thinking, maybe she's right. 
We're not going to find anybody with young families there. My kids are going to have no friends. This is going to be terrible. I'm like, we got to turn this Penske around, right? That's what I'm thinking. No way, Lord, don't send us into this. There's only one time we almost really quit. Jake was heading into middle school, and he didn't have a lot of Christian friends, and we were sending him into a middle school where we knew we didn't know a single Christian. And I just thought, am I doing a disservice to my family? Am I pastoring them well by doing this church plant thing? Because I could go back to this or that or go up and there would be this big youth group with lots of kids and, and they'd all be Christians together. They could all be in their Christian school together. And man, that's what I need to do to provide for my kid in this circumstance. And man, have I seen the grace of God on the back end of not quitting the provision in Jake's life and our life. And, oh, praise God. Our excuses are the first domino that have to fall, and it is his gracious provision that satisfies our excuses. It's his gracious provision that satisfies our excuses. See, we often weigh the situation, we weigh our resources and say, I don't think so, but we forget to weigh it against our God. We forget to weigh it against our God. Look what our God does. Rather than turning his back on Moses, he, he overly condescends and he overly abundantly provides. Then the anger of the Lord, verse 14 of chapter 4 in Exodus, was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he comes to you, he will be glad in his heart. He's going to go with you. He's going to be excited about it. And you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. And I, God, will be with you and your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouthpiece and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. He says, I, the Lord, will come down to meet you in a condescending way, giving of myself to, to bribe for you. I'll send Aaron with you. I'll give you both words, man. And don't forget the staff and the signs. I'm going to be with you. This is the great I am before these excuses. Uh, Moses has come before the Lord in the very beginning of his calling. And he says, who shall I tell them is sending me, Lord, if I am to do this, if I am to do this? And he says, the Lord says, tell them the I am who I am is sending you. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, this say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the I am, the eternal one, yod Hey, vav Hey, Yahweh, is sending you, the one who always was, who is today, and always will be, the one who has no need for resources because he owns everything and created everything. The one who has eternal purposes and eternal provision to meet those purposes. He's the one who's sending you. Bring your excuses before me, says God, the great I am. You ever heard that pejorative uh, phrase that people use of Christians? Christianity is just a crutch for the weak. It's just a crutch. Praise God, is that true? <laughs> 
It's not just a crutch. It's a wheelchair. Like, he picks this up. He, we, we stand before him in his eternal purposes, his eternal plan, and we say, this is too impossible. I do not have what it takes. And he says, I know. I know. I'm meeting every need by my grace, the sovereign God, the great I am, with these massive eternal purposes to bring people to salvation, to sanctify them, and then send them into his work. He says, I've called you, and I provided every piece of it. That's why he comes down in Christ, the great I am, to forgive us of our sins, to make us his sons and daughters. In John chapter 8, the great I am steps into history. Jesus Christ, his son, the father's son, comes in. And he says this phrase over and over. It's the same name of the Lord I am. He says in verse 24 of chapter 8, I told you, this is Jesus speaking, that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. Ego and me. I, I am. I am. Jesus is emphasizing it. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, verse 28, and that I do nothing of my own authority but speak as the Father sent me. I and the Father are one. He says, then he makes it even more explicit in verse 58 of John chapter 8. Jesus looks right at him and says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. The eternal God providing for his people, rescuing us from our sin as the eternal God hangs on our cross in our place. He says, be holy, and we're not. He he gives us his holiness, his obedience all the way to the cross. He says, "Uh, be holy, we are not. We give him excuses. We run from him as rebels, and he hangs on the cross to pay for our sins. He says, I am have forgiven you for your sins. I am have called you into this work. I am has planned to change all of eternity through you. From start to finish, the gospel and in good works, everything he calls us to, he provides The rich one becoming poor, that we poor ones would become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Him calling us into eternal, massive good works and then providing every aspect of these eternal, massive good works. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. It is why in the face of the I am, I can't, shifts to he can. It's the whole point of the gospel. Our inability and his mighty ability, he calls us into impossible situations with insufficient resources that he would get the glory. He would transform eternity. And maybe you've never felt this moment that Moses felt here. And it's only because you've not stood before the eternal I am, condemned in your sin, your excuses, and your rebellion, as Moses did at the burning bush. I am unholy. And the Lord says, you are unholy. Take your shoes off. You're in the presence of the holy God. And and in that moment, might we look to Christ who has been sacrificed for our sins and made us sons and daughters and embraced us by his salvation. And might that moment compel us, just like Moses who was sent, who was sent, who was sent by the holy God. And provided for in every step of that sending. See, you and I, we, we don't just go to work on Monday. You are there with eternal purposes, serving the eternal God to bring salvation and sanctification in your own life and the lives of others. We go to work to work with excellence for him, with creativity for him. We ought to shudder when we go to work and ask for his resources to do it. 
We go to work because people are dying around us without the gospel. Your neighbors, your coworkers, and friends who do not know him are going to perish without Christ. How many other churches are preaching and living this out in downtown Silver Spring? Moshe, Moshe, the Lord says. Moses, Moses, the called out one, the one who was drawn out. Paul, Paul, he says. Matt, Matt, he says. Tule, Tule, he says. Rhoda, Rhoda, he says. John, John, he says. He calls us out. Might we say like Moses, here am I. I'll close with two questions. What is God asking you to do and why can't you do it? There is probably something in your life today that, that is a risk of faith, a step where, where he is calling you into something that does not exist today, where, where he's saying you're addicted, but I want you to step out into the light, and I want you to confess your sin publicly to somebody who you know and trust. And you say, no way, I cannot do that. But in his grace you can, because he's paid for your sin, and you can share it. And he will radically transform this area as you bring it into the light over and over again by his grace. Is there a neighbor, a coworker, a friend that he's calling you closer into a relationship that you can share the gospel? What is he's calling you into something new? And there may even be an area of your life where you're already in it. Like you're, you're single, but you've never asked, what is God's eternal purposes for my singleness in this moment? And you shudder before him with a question, but he says, I want to work in you and through you in such profound, eternal ways right now. Or you're married, and you're married to a fool. And that's every one of us, by the way. And you say, I cannot carry this load with this fool. And he says, with me, you can, because he can. And you seek him for more gentleness, more patience, more sanctification. And you and your spouse pursue him together that you can pursue his purposes together. We're all at this precipice as a church together. And here's what we're calling you to. Would you mark May 23rd on your calendar and would you begin praying and not just towards generosity and a gift of finances, though praying towards that, but, but how does God want to radically reorient your life as you say yes to him in new ways? In your marriage, in your singleness, at your work, maybe it's changing your job, maybe it's living differently in your marriage, maybe it's living way more risky and on mission in your neighborhood. How does he want to change your life? Pray and mark the 23rd as you're praying towards this. Lord, change me. Prepare me to obey. And then on the 23rd, after you've heard from him what he wants to do in obedience in your life and what he wants to do in generosity in your life, would you say yes? Would you, would you give? Give just the biggest check you've ever written for his eternal purposes. I'm praying around $10,000 on that, on that Sunday. And that's crazy for us. That's going to hurt. That's emergency savings. And then pray and say, what do you want from us for the, over the next year in generosity and sacrifice? Lord, what do you want from us in this area of obedience and this area of generosity? What might he do? Hey, maybe it's this building. Maybe it's this one. It's come on the market. It's $4.9 million. Our resources are limited. The situation seems impossible. But maybe it's this one for us. Can you imagine the sanctuary on that top floor where all those windows are, 300-some adults praising our Lord together, proclaiming the gospel? 
On that bottom right, can you, can you picture a coffee shop? You walk in, it's our lobby, and then you go up to the rooftop where you can sit. It's all covered, and believers and non-believers are having coffee. You're doing 3Ds there on Wednesday night, and you're just seeing the Lord bring all these non-believers into our space that they might come and worship with us at some point. And Eagle Bank says, man, we'll keep renting for five years for 12000 a month. I mean, that'll cut our mortgage. <laughs> what if that's what he has for us or maybe something else? You know, that pastor of the Unitarian Church, he was right. It's impossible. You don't plant a church like ours in a place like this. It's too secular. It's too expensive. It doesn't work. Until the great I am shows up. You know, in the very beginning of our church, we were just 20-some people. We, we went to this under-resourced school, Title I school, and said, how can we help? And they said, do you want to put your name on it? We said, "Nah, we don't want to put our name on it. Great, then redo our courtyard. Gave it 1000 bucks and about 20 sets of hands. We pulled out a ton of huge roots like this. It was a jungle. And God was glorified in that moment where, where, where we stepped into this school, which, which maybe had never had a church step into that school. And, and then this one couple uh, came, and, and she served there with her, her son. And then about a year later, connected back with us and said, the way you served was amazing. She was struck by the way our church served at that time. And, and over time, salvation has come to their house. New faith and eyes open, clinging to the great I am and the son's provision. There was this other under-resourced school years back that said, we're not going to be able to host our Thanksgiving meal anymore. We don't have the, the resources to put it on. We don't have the money. And we said, well, could we help? And they said, yeah, that'd be great. And, and so they, they, they <laughs> gathered 600 times folks. We served him for three years like this. Over time, we had these conversations with the principal, and her, and her husband came to know and trust the Lord. And then she and her daughter started coming to the well, and, and we got to see uh, salvation and faith come in new ways. And God, was, God was, said, you think it's impossible? Let me show you what I can do. You know, Moses, he, he forgot his most legitimate excuse. He should have brought this one out before the Lord. But the Lord in, in that case would have said, I, I got that one too. See, Moses is a murderer. A shameful, sinful, disqualified murderer. He killed an innocent man. That's why he was hiding in the desert when the Lord called him. And the great I am, Jesus, the Son of God, said, I got that too. When his body was broken for our sin, when his blood was spilled for our sins, when he made us his sons and daughters, he said, I got that too.